Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Forest Hills podcast. We exist to see our neighbors from every culture follow Jesus as King. We're glad you're here and thanks for listening. More information about the life and mission of City on a Hill can be found at coahforesthills.org. Again, my name is Stephen. I'm the lead pastor here, here at City on the Hill, and I want to welcome you today. So glad you choose to worship with us on this really cold March day. Every single time I think spring is here, we get a false spring. And it's daylight saving. So you guys are like extra holy for being here an hour early, technically. So thank you for being here with us. And so I wanna welcome you. If you're a guest with us, we're really glad that you're here and you chose to worship with us today. You'll find a blue card in your seat. That's a connection card. Just has a couple of uh, bits, just your name, email, phone number. We'd love to follow up with you, get to know you a little bit better. Um, You can uh, take that, fill that out, drop it in the black box on the way out, or uh, you can go to coaforestills.org slash connect and do it online. And for doing so, we'll give you a $5 gift card to a local coffee shop, as well as make a $5 donation uh, to a a charity that we will send to you via email. We'll give you a list of ones you can choose from, um, Just and we will follow up with you about uh, more about City on a Hill. Um, Also, our values as a church are the gospel, community, and mission. uh, The gospel is good news. Uh, We believe that we have received good news because you and I are sinners who have been separated from God. Um, Because we've been separated from God, Jesus came and died for us, living a life we could never live, dying a death we deserved, and raising again to new life so that we could be saved. And anyone who repents of their sins and trusts in Jesus can be saved and have a new relationship with God. And if you've not entered into that, I'd love to talk with you about how to do so after the service. Community is the idea that God created us for relationships from every tribe, tongue, nation, people group, um, walk of life. We're all called together as this new family. And so we live this, this out and express this in community groups. We have several people who are new or not yet connected to a community group. We'd love for you to get connected to one. Just mark that on your card and drop that in the box. We'd love to follow up with you about that. And then lastly, mission. Mission is the idea that we uh, tell good news. We, we tell good news. We live life shaped by good news. And so because of what Jesus has done for us, we tell others about how they can find life in him. And we also live life shaped by what Christ has done for us and bless and serve our neighbors. Uh, A few announcements before we get into the text today. Uh, First is our baptism class. If you signed up for the baptism class, that is going to be right after the service upstairs in the office. If you're here this morning and you wanna learn more about what it means to take that next step of baptism, to to go public with your faith, to to say, um, uh, to do that, we would love for you to join us today at 1030 up in the office. It'll be a very short class, about 30 minutes. Uh, So please join us. Coming up on uh, Saturday, March 26th, we're having a marriage conference along with our City and a Hill Brookline congregation. Uh, the cost for that is $25 for a couple, $12.50 for an individual. That will include lunch uh, from Chick-fil-A. So that's less worth the price of admission right there. And uh, it's gonna be, uh, we're gonna be able to uh, talk about marriage and kind of unpack what we've talked about over the last couple of weeks. Uh, and then coming up next Sunday, we are starting back our elementary age Bible study right after the service. And so um, first through fifth graders, we're gonna dismiss you right before the benediction. Miss Sue's gonna be teaching you upstairs in the office. And so we'd love for any elementary age kids to be a part of that. And then speaking of kids ministry, um, our kids ministry is growing. There's like 77 babies right now in uh, in the, uh, the, the nursery. And so right now we have a, a kind of a newborn through three-year-old class. And we would really love to open open up another class. Our kids ministry uh, director, kid, co kids director, Heather, would love to do that. Um, we'd love to open up a three to five-year-old class, but we need four more volunteers. And so we need four more team members who, who will say, I'll go through the training, I'll do all this and love and serve our kids. And here at City on a Hill, we are very clear that this is not just child
childcare. This is an opportunity to walk alongside parents to help them love their kids and point them towards Jesus. And so I don't think there's a greater thing we could do as followers of Jesus than help kids follow Jesus. And Jesus said to let the little children come to him. And so uh, I believe we can step into that. So if you're interested in that, mark it on that yellow card, drop in the box or find Heather right here. Heather, raise your hand and she will get you set up for that. Uh, we are rounding the corner on our Ephesians series. We've been in the book of Ephesians since uh, the, about the middle of September. And we, just to kind of give a, a recap of this as we're entering into our last few sermons, um, we are going to be, uh, uh, before I get there, let me talk about what's gonna be coming up next. Um, starting at the beginning of April, we're gonna be looking at the road of redemption, like the, the last week of Jesus's life as we look toward uh, the cross and we look toward the resurrection. So we're gonna be doing that. But as we recap, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Paul is writing this letter as a representative of the church, as an apostle who's been set aside to go to new places where people don't know Jesus, plant churches. And he's trying to equip this new church who's living in the second largest city in the Roman Empire, a very cosmopolitan city, a very pagan religious city. And he's trying to equip them with how they can live a different life. He's saying there's this whole new people that you are as the body of Christ. Um, you're called to live in this new way because of of Jesus's work on the cross for you. And he says all the way back in chapter one that the way you relate to God has changed because of Jesus. That God has blessed us, not that we do anything to get to God, but that he redeems us out of our sin that he gives us an inheritance in God and that he has adopted us into God's family, that anyone who places their faith in Jesus, no matter where you come from, no matter where, what you've done, can receive this. The way he saves us by his grace and he empowers us by his spirit to live out the new life that he's called us to live. And this changes the way that we treat each other. We see where this new multicultural, multi-ethnic family that's been brought together and unified in this common hope in Jesus, uh, this diverse people serving each other out of our diverse gifts and over the last few weeks, we've been looking at how the gospel transforms our relationships. We looked at how it transforms marriage and dating, how it transforms parenting. And today we're gonna to be looking at how the gospel transforms work. We spend so much of our time at work, thinking about work, wondering what we're gonna be doing with our lives. And we have a faith that doesn't just you know, relegate itself to Sundays. We have a faith that is 24 seven that allows us to apply it to everything that we do. And so what we see here is we see in chapter five, two controlling verses that help us understand the way the gospel shapes work. All the way back in chapter five, verse 18, it says that we need to be filled with the spirit. And in, in order to be filled with, and we're filled with the spirit in order that verse 21, we may submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so our worship of, of Jesus impacts the way that we relate, a husband and a wife relate to each other. It, it impacts the way that a, a parents and their, their kids relate to each other. And it affects how we relate to each other in the workplace. Now, what we see here in, at the end of chapter five, beginning of chapter six was a household code. And back in Greco-Roman times, it was very common for a philosopher to give a code of this is what a household would look like. And it's kind of like you know, first century, like a, it's almost like a first century self-help book. This is what a guide to parenting, you know, the, the dummy's guide to parenting, the dummy's guide to the workplace. This is a little bit what it was like. And in the household code in Greco-Roman times was the understanding that the household was the family, but it also involved servants and workers who were a part of that household. And so Paul is saying that Jesus changes this. 
He, he changes the way that we view work, the way we approach work. And before we can really get into how this applies to maybe your IT job or how this applies to the classroom or how it applies to maybe you going to the job site tomorrow, we have to do a little bit of work. We gotta dig a little bit here because if you ever picked up your Bible and you looked at something and said, I don't know what to do with that. Anybody else? I'm gonna raise your hand. You're like, I don't know. I believe the Bible's true. I trust God's word, but we run across something that really hits us in the face and we're like, wait a minute, what's he saying here? He's talking about bond servants and masters. And in fact, some have actually used sections of the scripture like this to say, see, look, the Bible can't be true. It's backwards because we know that this is wrong. We, we know slavery is wrong. And the question that often gets asked is, is the Bible condoning slavery? And the short answer to that is no. And we need to spend a little bit of time unpacking that before we understand why this applies to the workplace. And so we're really trying to bridge two cultures, 2,000 years apart. So let's first look at the context in which Paul is writing these words. Verse five says, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. And the word bond servant there has been, it can be translated as Slave. Now, when we read that with 21st century eyes, we're reading that through a cultural lens that is on the other side of slavery. On the other side of, we think in terms of American slavery, we're on the other side of abolition and Jim Crow and, and civil, the civil rights movement. And now, listen, that is still impacting our culture. All that is there's still going on. We still experience racial injustice in our very own city, but we need to understand that we live in a very different culture than the Ephesians lived. The culture to which Paul is writing, he's writing to a culture where slavery is so enmeshed into the culture that it was a fact of everyday life. It was at the point where it was normal. Now, when I say normal, I don't mean right. I wanna be very clear about that. Not saying it was right, but it was a fact of life. And in fact, when we look at this, the institution of slavery, it is one of the oldest institutions in human history. And it shows that sin is real because for as long as we have lived and been on this earth, the powerful have oppressed the powerless. Historians have looked back at the institution of slavery and have said there's really not been a culture in human history that has not done this. And I want to point out the differences in the way that the world that Paul was living in and our world would have understood slavery. The differences between slavery in the, in, in the New Testament world and American slavery is a few things. One, it's not based on race or skin color. It was not based upon that. It was based upon who conquered who. Secondly, it wasn't permanent. It wasn't a permanent status. In fact, many people would serve about anywhere between seven and 15 years. Some would serve for their lifetime. And it wasn't kidnapping and systematic capture. It often happened through someone becoming a prisoner of war. Uh, someone might be born in, they may place themselves inside of it in order to pay off debts. And when we look at that in contrast to the horrors of the African-American, the African slave trade, with the systematic kidnapping, torture, abuse, and brutalization of African people, we're talking about two different things. Not saying that the slavery that was occurring in the ancient world was not wrong, but it was different. And, and we look at it through a particular cultural lens. In, the, in this time, in the, in the Greco-Roman world, this was the workforce for the Roman Empire. About one-third of the entire population would have been considered servants or slaves, and it covered every profession you could imagine teachers, doctors, artisans, lawyers. And so Paul is writing within this context 
And what he's writing is framed really by two big ideas. One is that Christians had zero political influence. They were a marginalized people of a marginalized people. The Jewish people had no rights within the Roman Empire, and they didn't even like the Christians who were originally a sect of Judaism. They're running for their lives. And so out of a population of 50 million people, only about 10,000 would have been Christians spread out across the Roman Empire. And so they're facing this deeply entrenched evil system that clearly misses God's biblical vision for humanity. And Paul is talking to this church that would have been filled with people who were servants and slaves, who were drawn to this idea of Christianity and a Jesus who sets captives free. And he's speaking to people who are asking the question, how do I go to work tomorrow facing this reality? How do I go serve tomorrow with gospel hope? And the reality of Christianity is that it is not a rose-colored glasses religion. We don't look at everything and just kind of with pie in the sky hope. We look at the very realistic fact that our world is messed up, that everything is not right, that we are suffering as people. And even though this type of servanthood doesn't hold a candle to American slavery, it's still hard. It's still unjust. And here is what Paul is saying. He's saying that you can cling to Jesus while you wait. You can can cling to Jesus while you long for freedom. You can cling to Jesus and you can work hard because ultimately you're loving God by loving your enemy. The other idea that frames this is that it shows how the gospel uproots the social order. Notice who does Paul address first? He addresses the servants. He doesn't address the masters. And the order here is really important because the order in an ancient text like this was about primacy. Who was getting the most honor? Paul addresses the servants and he dignifies them very much in the same way when he did with wives and husbands by by, uh, uh, talking to the wives first, very much like with children where he talks to the children first, groups of people in the ancient world who were often disregarded, disrespected, and taken advantage of. Paul is giving a voice to. He flips the balance of power and he says that in God's kingdom, the least shall be the greatest. And he dignifies servants by addressing them. And if you look at any other household code of the time, they never even addressed them. Plato didn't address them. Seneca didn't address them. Aristotle didn't even mention them. In fact, the only thing he really said about slaves is that some were born to be slaves. Paul's dignifying them and saying, you are a part of this larger family. You matter And he gives instruction here to both the servant and the master in the ancient time. And he says, obey, do the job that you've been given out of respect. The word fear there means awe or respect with trembling, a seriousness with which you take your work because ultimately your work is for God and not for other people. But also notice how Paul subverts and and, and kind of disorients the social order in verse nine. He says, masters do the same. Do what the same? Respect them, serve them, treat them like they are worthy. Don't threaten them. Don't use your power in order to abuse and get your way. And he kind of says something interesting at the the end of verse nine, where he's almost saying, you know, you're no different than your servant in God's eyes. What is Paul ultimately saying? He's saying the only way you can treat them with honor, the only way you can dignify them, the only way that you can truly treat them is if they are equal at the foot of the cross is to free them. And when you look at the whole of the Bible, not just a single verse, but you look at the entire Bible, and that's how we come up with theology is we look at the entire Bible. 
you see clearly that God's goal would be freedom. Philemon, verse 16, when, uh, when Paul is talking about Onesimus, who was a servant of Philemon, he says, don't treat him as a servant, treat him as a brother. 1 Corinthians 7, 21 tells us, tells servants to seek your freedom if at all possible. And Galatians 3, 28 gives incredible hope where it says there is no longer slave nor free. The Bible makes very clear that every person is made in the image of God. And then in order to love your neighbor, you can no longer justify this sinful system. And this is what made American slavery so egregious was that you had to ignore 80% of the Bible. And when you look at the slave Bible, which took roughly parts of 16 different books of the Bible, ignoring parts about liberation and freedom, you see how you have to ignore the Bible to condone slavery, ignore the Bible to condone servanthood. And what Paul is saying, and is saying in the midst of this culture, which doesn't reflect this, in the midst of this culture, which is completely set against this, where you have no power, Jesus is gonna do something new and you as the church can look different than the world. You're gonna look different than the world. And in the Roman empire, can you imagine neighbors looking at the church and seeing servants who love their masters and masters who are setting their servants free and treating them as family? And there was this increasing impact that as more Christians began to fill the Roman empire, more people began to come to faith, you began to see more reforms start to happen, more people set free, and you began to see churches buying the freedom of servants. See, all Christians must see the image of God and those who are oppressed and seek to end their oppression. And work is a way that we can do that by dignifying other people. Now that we've set that context Let's bring that into the 21st century. How does this tell us how we are called to work? So let's look for the remainder of the sermon at how the gospel changes work. How does the gospel change the way you work? And the first thing we see is that it changes your motivation for work. The gospel changes why you go to work tomorrow. And so there are two ungodly attitudes toward work that we all tend to take. We either tend to undervalue work or we overvalue it. We undervalue it or we overvalue it. Verse five says that we should work with a sincere heart. In other words, a singularness in the way that we work. There are no ulterior motives. We're not working in order to just get noticed. We're not pretending to work hard when we think people are looking. And we have all done that, right? You're playing Wordle on the computer and you see the boss coming and you're like, I need to put my screen up and act like I'm working. We put our code in our chair. We make it look like we're sitting and actually doing something. We give what here is called eye service. We make it look like we're doing this. And we all have a tendency, because we've all been in jobs that we hate, is if you don't like your job, you find your job to be meaningless, you're not satisfied in what you're doing, you do just enough to get paid. You do just enough so the paychecks keep coming. Anybody else ever been there? Yeah, anybody else ever been there where you've been like in the movie Office Space uh, where you're sitting with the boss and there's this incredible scene where the guy's being, he's being honest. He's had this moment in his life where he's like, I have nothing to hide. And then he's like, he's like, you know, Peter, tell me about your experience. And he said, well, he said, I usually just get here and I stare at my computer for the first 15 minutes and I move some papers around. And I do this and do that. And I do just enough to not get fired. We've all been there. And that's actually an undervaluing of work. Because what we're doing when we say that is we're saying that work itself is not good, but what work provides me is good. And so maybe you've been in a job, you're in a job that's not fulfilling. Maybe you hate your boss. Maybe you are disrespected in, in the workplace. Maybe your work isn't valued. 
And you can easily begin to think that work itself doesn't matter. But verse five tells us that when you work, no matter what you do, no matter where you do it, do it as you would Christ, to Christ. It means regardless, if your job isn't what you want, it means that if your boss is a jerk, it means if you don't get the credit you think you deserve, your work becomes an act of worship to Jesus who called us to work, verse, uh, to do all things to his glory. Verse Corinthians 10, verse 31 says, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So whether you're eating or drinking or working, whatever it is, do it as if you're doing it for God's glory. And so our motivation to work changes that we can do good work, we can do hard work because it's not for our boss. It's not for a company, but it's to glorify God himself. So one temptation is to undervalue. The other is to overvalue work. And that, this is most of us. If you're in Boston, you probably are doing pretty well at your job. You know, this is a hard place to live. You gotta have a reason to live here. You gotta make enough money to live in a city like Boston. So you probably overvalue your work more than you do undervalue it because we know how to hustle here. And so this causes us to be people pleasers. We want other people to think we're valuable because of our work. And our work becomes a way to validate ourselves to other people. So maybe it's to your coworkers. You want them to know how hard of a worker you are. Maybe it's to your boss because you want to become indispensable to your workplace so that they give you bonuses and they give you vacation and all the perks that come along with your job. You do this because you want to make mom or dad proud. So many of us are in, in jobs and professions and doing things because mom and dad said that's what we should do. We want to make them proud. You know, uh, we want to make our clients, our families, whatever it might be, that what happens is our opinion of ourselves rises and falls upon how our work is going. We also overvalue our work by the status that work brings, by the money that it provides for us. So maybe you're not tempted to please other people. You're like, forget them. This is just a means to an end. And so we think we overvalue work and say, if I get the promotion that I long for, then I'm finally going to make it. I can just do better for myself. And the problem is, is when we don't get those, it absolutely crushes us. So what we do when we overvalue work in this way, so we say, I'm never gonna stop. I'm never gonna slow down. I'm gonna put in extra hours. I'm gonna do whatever it takes to make this perfect. I'm gonna compete and prove myself that I, that I, that I can finally do this, that, I, that, I, that I'm gonna do it. That if I don't do this, then I'm not gonna make it. But verse eight tells us that we don't have to undervalue or overvalue work, that because Christ is the one who rewards us, we can put work in its proper place. That he gives what we need. So we don't undervalue work, that we're not gonna cut corners. We're not gonna make it look like we're working. We're gonna do good work. We're gonna be ethical in our work because we wanna make God proud of us. My kids all the time when they were little would bring pictures and drawings and sculptures and all sorts of little things. And they said, dad, look at this. And when they're doing that, they're putting this word before me that they're believing is good. They're putting it before me because they want my praise. They want their mom's praise. In the same way, when we work, we're presenting it to our heavenly father and saying, God, we want you to be, want you to be proud. I want you to see what I've done and I want it to be worship to you. The gospel frees us from overvaluing work, meaning that you can stop. You can rest. You don't have to work yourself into the ground. You have nothing to prove. You don't have to constantly be going and you can worship and serve God and do his will from your heart. So it changes our motivation to work, but it also changes the way we view work. Verse eight says that knowing that whatever good anyone does, what's being assumed in those words is that any work we do, as long as it's not immoral, as long as it's not hurting people, as long as it's not detracting from the gospel is good work. 
work itself is good. It's given by God before a world where sin existed. And so oftentimes we think of work as a curse. Work is not the curse, but work is cursed. In Genesis chapter two, we see that God created humanity to cultivate the earth and do it in such a way that brought him glory, that extended his glory, but also so that every human would flourish. There would be greater joy, greater peace, greater security. And when we see work this way, we see all work as good and therefore a way that we image God. Richard Koken says that God is a creative worker, so he designed us for creative work in our employment and in our gospel ministry. We image God by seeing the goodness of work and doing good work. Another said that when work is well done, it's a channel of God's love for his world. So all work is good work. All work can be God's work. And so we tend to think, when we think of work, we tend to think of work being good or holy when it's like ministry work. We think of pastors, like pastors are doing God's work. Missionaries are doing God's work. They're doing work that matters. We tend to think of work that saves lives as the work that matters. Like during the, the, the uh, beginnings of the COVID-19 pandemic, we were honoring those who are, who are nurses and doctors working on the front line, and we should. We think of people who, are, uh, who developed COVID vaccines as people who are doing good and holy work. But any work that leads to human flourishing is good work. This means that if you're a mechanic, you can help somebody get to work. That's human flourishing. If you're a teacher, you can spark learning. If you're in finance, you can help people understand and create, and create wealth and create money. If you're in sales, you could uh, get, uh, help sell somebody a product that makes sure that they can spend more time with other people. And so since work itself matters, it means that there is no job that's meaningless. And when this view changes, it means that you can go to work tomorrow morning and you don't have to mail it in. You don't have to say, decide that your work doesn't matter, but I can work really hard and do good work because it's gonna bless other people. What would change if you asked, God, how can I make my work today give you glory? What would change if you were to ask and really to reframe the way you see work, not by how do I get through Monday, but how can I work in such a way that helps my neighbor thrive? And the reality is, is that work is hard. It is cursed. Work has been affected by the fall. If you look at Genesis chapter three, it says, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat till you return to the ground. The thorns and thistles he's talking about is that obviously before the fall, work must have been really easy. Must have never got frustrated. Must have never lost that email. Must have never had to work with that difficult coworker. And we have these thorns and thistles that make work harder. That work is just frustrating sometimes. We go to work and it's just not what it was to use. It just doesn't fulfill us like it did last year. We lose jobs. We're not in the, where we want to be in our career. It doesn't always come out like we want it. And what happens is we begin to get work out of order when we get the wrong view. And we begin to believe that work is a means to validate ourselves versus blessing other people. St. Augustine, the great fourth century bishop, uh, he talked about how we disorder our loves. And work is a way that we disorder love. We get things out of order. And he says that it's kind of like falling in love with the boat instead of the destination. We're more concerned with the vehicle than we are the point, which is to restore the dignity of others, to care for others through our work. Also, it changes the view of ourself and others. Look at verse eight. It says that whether you're a bondservant 
or free, you can do good work and receive back from the Lord. What this means is that your greatest identity is not in what you do. And some of us need to repeat that phrase every single morning when we go to work, right? I am not a teacher. I'm not a pastor. I'm not a salesperson. I'm ultimately first a child of God. I am first loved by Jesus and who I am and what I am and what I do is all received from the Lord, meaning that in Christ, I am perfectly loved apart from my performance. I'm perfectly loved apart from my work review. I'm perfectly loved apart from my boss's opinion. I'm perfectly loved apart from how that report went yesterday. And this means that you can work hard, but you don't have to give your life to your job. It means you don't have to die for a boss who would never die for you. It means you can trust Jesus who did give his life for you and brought you into his family. And what this actually does when you get this reoriented view of who you are is it actually changes the way that you work. You can work harder. You can do better because you're not so concerned about what someone thinks. You are resting in the perfect love of Christ. The apostle Paul said that he was a workman already approved and therefore he worked harder than everybody else. But when we change our view of ourselves and others, it also levels the playing field in the way that we see other people. So verse nine is saying, whether you're the boss or whether you're the employee, whether you're crushing it at your white collar job making seven figures or you're working for minimum wage, you're seen the same before God. As humans, we have a really interesting way of categorizing. I think this is one of the ways it shows just how brilliant the design of God is, is every moment unconsciously, we are making categorical decisions. When we're looking at people, looking at situations, all these millions of, of micro-assessments are happening in our brain at all times. And we do this when we meet another person. When you look at somebody, you meet somebody, you, start to, you kind of start to size them up. You start, to, you, you start asking, and so I did this, did this this morning. I asked someone's name. I asked where they were from. And what's the third question I asked? What do you do? Like, I, like it has, it's what we do. We have these, because this helps us assess people. What do you do for work? Now, I'm not trying to do this, but it's easy for ourselves to, what we're doing is we're comparing ourselves to another person. And if our identity is not rooted in Christ, it, our work can become a way to feel better or feel worse about ourselves, depending on other people that we meet. To feel superior or inferior based on our job versus another person's job, how much money I make versus how much money you make. And what the gospel does is it completely turns this around and makes Jesus the, stand, the, the point of reference. That there is no partiality with God because none of us measure up to the holy standards that only Jesus could fulfill. And we see that in Jesus's kingdom, we have a God who took on flesh and became a servant and gave himself for us. What would change about your work if you really understood your identity was in Jesus first? Real quick, as we close out, just I wanna give a, a couple of, of just practical ways we can look at work. Just some, because we're, we're always asking questions. We're always asking questions like, what is my calling? Um, am I in the right job? Should I change jobs? Should I change careers? And so just a few questions to help you think through some of those questions. The first is, what am I good at? What am I good at? There's lots of ways to see this. What are you just naturally wired for? Uh, I love, like, uh, Amy has a, a brother. All her family, they're in, a, in commercial plumbing. And I couldn't plumb my way out of a wet paper bag. Like, I, my mind does not think that way. But her brother, Daniel, can go into a mechanical room, a, a commercial plumbing, and he can look at it 
And it's like a work of art. He can say, we could do this, 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 and this, and we could reduce this by 30% and cut the cost by the... His brain just thinks that way. He's a mathematical wizard. He could do anything related to math, but I think he's been wired for this. Some of you see connections where other people don't see connections. You're able to read literature and you're able to go deep with it. How has God wired you? What are you inclined toward? What, what, what type of schooling and training do you have? What do others affirm in you? When we think about discovering what we're good at, it's not, we don't just sit at home and just kind of wait for a, a voice from heaven. We have to test it. This is why, why the, the jobs you work and the way that you serve are helpful in helping you narrow in on exactly what you're supposed to do. This is what happens in the church. When we think about a call to serve, you may have heard that call to kids ministry. You may think, you know, I'm just, I don't know if I'd be good with kids. You don't know until you try. And, and the way that we also do this in the church, we have a leadership pipeline that's designed to help you find the best way for you to serve. When we serve and we work in these ways, it helps us narrow in on what we're actually good at. And especially if you're early in your career, don't despise your job because it might be the very thing that God is using to help narrow you in on what you're good at. It's a discovery process. In fact, when I early on in my life, when I was in, I was actually out of vocational ministry for a couple of years and I was working at a charter school, I'm teaching math. Um, it, it, it was like it was like, like it was like an episode of Scared Straight. Like it was it was really tough. And I'm doing this, and I'm teaching math. And then eventually, I learned I'm really, I was I was good at being a leader. So I'm 26 years old. They actually turned the charter school over to me, and I learned more about leadership in those two years of that school than I did in the church. God used that experience to help narrow in on what I was called to do. And it opens up this broad range of jobs that say it's not this particular job that I'm called to. It's the way that God has wired me that he's gonna use me in a litany of different ways. It frees us. Secondly is, what do I enjoy? And that is a very different question than what am I good at? Because you can be good at something and not enjoy it. What are you drawn toward? Now, that's not a perfect question because you may hate your job right now, not because it's something you don't enjoy, but because you're not content. And we talked last week about how we have to learn contentment in our restlessness. We have to ask God to help us be content because a job change won't necessarily fix it. Now, that doesn't mean you can't change your job, but make sure your heart's content in Christ first. And we have to ask ourselves, what do I enjoy to help direct us toward the work God has for us? If you've ever seen the movie Chariots of Fire, it's about uh, the 1924 Olympics. Eric Liddell is a Scottish runner who's a Christian and he's talking to his sister and he's weighing out whether he should be a missionary or whether he should run in the Olympics. And he says, he says, I believe God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when when I run, I feel his pleasure. What helps you feel the pleasure of God? What helps you actually enjoy the creation that God has has called you to live in? What do you enjoy? And then lastly, what opportunities is God providing? What doors is he opening? And I don't think you necessarily have to kick the door open to uh, and and kick the door down to, uh, to figure that out. But also what doors is God closing? You might have been trying to get out of your job and move away for the last two years. What if God is wanting to grow you right now where you are to do something in you that that job would not fix? Interesting about Eric Liddell is that eventually he did go and become a missionary to China. And upon his death in 1945, another missionary said that his final words were, it is complete surrender. See, whether you find your dream job or not, whether you get your promotion or not, whether you find fulfilling work, whatever you do, you can live a God-glorifying life and serve him with your whole 
heart because the real question is, have you completely surrendered to Jesus? Have you said, God, my work is yours. What you call me to do, I will do. Because we have a Jesus who completely surrendered himself for us that he took on the form of a servant. He didn't despise it. He took on death for you and I. He died in your place so that you might live. And he worked that work to the glory of God. Let's pray.